Hello and welcome to the Music Survival Guide, the independent musician's guide on how to survive in the music industry. My name's Phil, a mixing and mastering engineer. Well, hello to you. I hope you're doing well this fine day. It's currently uh, early July as I record this. I'm quite getting quite ahead of the podcasting schedule, which is great. And if all goes to plan, you should be hearing this at the beginning of August, which is odd. But there we go. Anyway, it's worth saying, by the way, that this is the last episode of the Music Survival Guide podcast for a little while. Don't worry, I'm not going away. I'm just taking the rest of August off. A bit of time to rest and recuperate, regather my forces and start again in September. So don't worry, I'm not going away. Just spending a few weeks away. I wanted this week to do something a bit different. And I thought, what could I do? What would be helpful? What would be interesting? So I thought I'd do a Q&A. And it turns out that I've been getting questions on the sly via my Instagram. If you don't follow me on Instagram, my handle is engineer. And I post regular thoughts and ideas and just things to try in your band. All sorts of things about being in a band and recording and everything. So on there, on Fridays, I do a Q&A where I just invite people to ask me questions. And I thought I'd gather some of the top questions and tell you my thoughts on the podcast. Why not? could be interesting because when you're writing an answer on Instagram and you've got just the space within the box to do it, that's quite limiting. And so I thought I'd I'd talk about it. So question one is, how do you define printing a mix? I hear the phrase a lot, but get confused. Well, to print the mix is a bit of an old school term nowadays. It refers to back in the day, as they say, when you used to literally record the finished mix onto a two track master tape. You don't do that nowadays. Well, you may do, but... I do do that nowadays, and most bands don't do that nowadays. Instead, what you're actually doing is you're creating a file. So it's when you've finished the mixing part of the process and you want to turn that all that processing on your door into a final track. To print it is to turn it from that, that mishmash of things into a stereo file. It's as simple as that. Question two is drum quantization, yes or no? That's a bit of a controversial topic. Well, it depends. It depends on the genre, I think. So if you're going for really kind of easygoing rock, then you can get away with it quite well to just leave it kind of as it is. If you're going for really tight, aggressive metal, then it's pretty industry standard to actually do a lot of quantization and to get things onto the grid because it's that kind of mechanical nature of metal that means that you have to do a lot of that kind of thing. It's not really my personal preferred method. I tend to try and leave drums a bit more natural. I don't like to do quantization. Sometimes it's necessary. But the problem with quantization is if I, as a mixing engineer, get a multi-track of a song and I go, I need to sort out those drums for whatever reason, then the problem with that is if I start to do that and I kind of nudge everything around, then say on a snare drum hit where the bass and the guitar make a note at the same time, that will no longer be in line. That is a problem. That is why if you're going to have to do quantization, it's best to do it after you've recorded the drums before you record everything else. So that's kind of my answer, really. It depends. I tend not to do it. I do it if I really need to, which is quite rare. So there you go. Number three, do you use a drum submix for final output or do you keep each drum track separate to the master? Well, 
what I think this person is talking about is they're talking about the idea of a bus. And a bus in uh, recording terminology is not a vehicle you get on. It's a vehicle to combine all your tracks into a smaller amount of faders to deal with. So if you've ever worked in a door, you'll know that if you, say, record drums, you get maybe, I don't know, eight tracks that you record with and you end up with eight faders that you can control the individual levels of. To add a bus into the proceedings means that you send all those eight faders, for example, to a single fader. And then from there, you send it to your master bus. And what you can do on that fader is you can, firstly, you can control the level of all of those individual tracks with just one fader, which is really handy. It's a really good way of mixing. But also, if there's a process that you want to apply to all of, say, the drum tracks, then you can just put one plugin at that point instead of adding eight different plugins. It's just a much simpler way of working. It's a bit lazier in that regard. You don't have to add all those plugins and do all the changes individually. But that's a great way to work. I would recommend if you're mixing to make sure you use buses when mixing to kind of add to that efficiency when you're in that process. Number four, what's your favourite part of the mixing process? Well, for me... My favourite part of the mixing process is when everything is together, when everything is done, as it were, in terms of my initial attack of the mix, and I've sent it to the band, and then when they when they've had a listen and shared their thoughts with each other, they will give me revisions, and that is my favourite part. It's the revisions process. I don't know why I like it so much. I guess it's because the band have heard it, and then we're in the process of refining the mix to what the band want it to be. So I don't know, whatever revision may be, it may be that one of the guitars is a bit too loud for them. One of the um, bass licks needs to kind of be raised a little bit. Maybe there needs to be a bit more reverb on something, a bit of delay, something like that. Maybe a telephone effect that I wasn't aware that they wanted, something like that. It's a great point where we can just kind of get the the vision of what they want and get the the mix where it is and to get them to kind of come together it's really great i love that part of the mixing process getting everything sort of finalized uh, between myself and the mix and the band number five is a controversial question it's simply mac or pc well i'm a pc person <laughs> uh, so there we are. I, there's no, there's no reason. I'm not, I'm not a snob about being a PC person. It's just what I've always used and what I've grown up with, and it's kind of as simple as that. Most doors will work in either Mac or PC. So if you're thinking about, say, each of you in your band getting a door, getting a door and getting a little recording setup, make sure you use the same door so you can share projects with each other. If one of you has a PC and one of you has a Mac, it shouldn't be a problem. You should be able to share files between you. So don't worry about that. Use whatever you're comfortable with. Ultimately, in PCs, I really like the fact that I can upgrade parts of it very easily and it's not really a problem. Number six is Gibson or Fender to go to the this or that theme question again. So when it comes to guitars, for myself, I think I prefer a Gibson sound. So I like the humbuckers on rock and metal. I mean, I you know, I say that, I look to my left and I have a Yamaha Revstar RS620, which is not a Gibson. But in terms of its tone, it's, it's more Gibson-like. Uh, I would recommend if you're thinking of what guitar to get, have a look at Yamaha. Some of their offerings are really good. But I yeah, as I say, I really like that kind of humbucker tone. Having said that, 
a Fender Telecaster really has a special place in my heart. If you've heard a Fender Telecaster through like a real juiced up Marshall, it's a really good sound and it shouldn't be underestimated. You will need a noise gate for it because single coils will hum like crazy through a lot of distortion, but it might be worth thinking about going for down the Telecaster route. I'm very much interested in getting a Telecaster at some point for that tonal variation. So that could be worth thinking about. But to me, Gibson is kind of my wheelhouse, really. So we're just going to take a quick break. And in a moment, there will be more questions and answers. Number seven is when do you choose to high pass something? So high passing, if you don't know, refers to getting a EQ and taking off some of the low end of the sound. So, for example, if you were uh, recording a snare drum and you thought it sounded a bit kind of too boomy in the mixing process, then you put on a high pass filter and you get rid of some of that low end. So it kind of cuts off anything below that frequency, really. When you choose to high pass something, um, most things when I mix are actually high pass to a greater or lesser extent. And that is to avoid potential problems. So for example, if someone was recording and there was a bit of aircon in their room and there was a bit of aircon rumble that got picked up, sometimes that will happen on the very low end of an instrument. It's really good idea just to high pass a little bit, just to get rid of that kind of rumble, that kind of thing. Really helpful. The thing about bass and low end in a mix is it chews up energy. And you need to choose very carefully what you want to focus with that energy. So for me, the kick and the bass guitar are the really important low end instruments that need that energy. And to a lesser extent, the floor tom as well and the drums. Anything else should not be eating that energy. It's really important to make it clear what you are using your low end on because it's so easy to overload a mix with lots of low end Rhythm guitars, for example, have a load of low rumble in that isn't actually useful frequencies. It's just there and it will make your kick and your bass guitar sound weaker if you don't deal with it. So that's something to think about. Question number eight is following on a, a theme, actually, which is what the <laughs> what the F actually is EQ. And I'll let you work out what that word I missed out was. So there's two ways to answer the question. There's the, the technical sense of how does an EQ mechanically work? And then there's the practical question of what is it? And I'll, I'll answer the practical question first. EQ is equalization. So high passing is part of that, part of something you can do with an EQ. And what it means is that you can get rid of um, or boost certain parts of the frequency spectrum of a sound for example, with a kick, you have the the low end where the kind of impact of the kick is, but then you also have the high end where the click is and the 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 slap is. That's me uh, slapping my uh, fist on my hand. You kind of get that sound on the high end of a kick, and you sometimes want to boost some frequencies and you sometimes want to cut some frequencies when you're mixing. The point of doing so is that you can focus the sound. You can focus on the bits of the sound that you want, the bits of the sound that you need, and you get rid of the bits of the sound that you don't want. So 
The point of doing that is that you, then you can make everything fit together. So the problem with a lot of tracks, especially in something like rock, is that a lot of them will kind of, their frequencies will ride over each other. So the idea is you get rid of some frequencies on certain tracks where that's not useful and you boost frequencies where it is useful on other tracks. And that way you can get everything to work together. You can hear everything. It sounds great. The other side of it is the mechanical side of how does an EQ work? It may be worth researching. It's a bit beyond me. I happen to know it's something to do with uh, phase shifting and you kind of uh, shift the phase in a very specific point. Say if you're choosing to boost the low end, you're shifting the phase in that end. And the more it goes in and out of phase, depends on if you're boosting or cutting. It's very, very clever, but it's a bit beyond me. You don't really need to know how it mechanically works. Suffice to say, it's for making sure stuff really works in a mix. Have you listened to Dolby Atmos yet? What are your thoughts? Well, I've listened to it in the cinema and it's great in the cinema. I think it has limited applications for music at the moment. So everyone that you are hoping to release a song to, for example, will be listening to it in either stereo or near enough stereo, by which I mean if you're listening just on the internal speakers on the phone, they tend to be stereo, but the speakers on the phone with it built within it are so close together that it may as well be mono. So there's a limited appeal at the moment for things like Dolby Atmos and surround sound mixes. They can be great in a rock context, they can be great for live gigs. So I've heard of some bands doing surround sound mixes of a live concert recording. So for example, um, in the kind of front and to the, you know, the sides, you have the band as they're laid out on stage. And that's how you kind of how you kind of pan things around. And then behind you and around you are the audience mics. So it kind of sounds like you're sat in the middle of the audience, which is really interesting. But Again, I think it has limited applications right now for rock music. It may be in the future that people move over to Dolby Atmos kind of and that kind of thing permanently, but it, I don't know if that's going to happen yet. Number 10. Do you think it's a good idea for an artist to release a song even if they feel it's a bad song? That is a great question. It depends. So I think in your heart of hearts, if you truly think I hate this song. I've recorded it. Maybe it's even mixed. It's done. I just hate it. And I, 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 I just don't like it. Then don't do it. Because ultimately, this is a creative pursuit, which is sure you want to get fans and you want to kind of get a following and that kind of thing. But ultimately, you need to feel creatively fulfilled. And if a song is leaving you feeling cold, if it's leaving you kind of just, I just don't like it, then don't do it because you're just going to cause yourself harm. If that song happens to kind of really take off, you're going to have to start playing it a lot. And, you know, if you just hate it, then that's not going to be no good. The flip side is if everyone you know, and I do mean everyone you know, says this is a great song, then consider releasing it consider releasing it you don't have to consider it because that could be worth thinking about but again if it takes off it's really popular you're gonna have to play it a lot so that's something for you to balance up really i'd say i'd err on the side of saying no i must of course point out that when bands record and even mix their own music by the end of that process they'll probably hate it because they'll have heard each chorus and each section and each bit loads of times 
the thing to do at that point is to step away and consider hiring a mixing engineer or take some time off. It's not necessarily that you hate the song, that it's bad. It's just that you're too, too used to it. Time away really help you reassess what you think of the song. My final question for now is what's your guilty pleasure when it comes to listening to music? Well, <laughs> my guilty pleasure. Um, I really like folk. I really like folk music, uh, which doesn't feel too embarrassing compared to some genres. Uh, my embarrassing genres is late 90s and early 2000s pop. <laughs> so I'm talking Britney Spears, Boyzone, S Club 7, Spice Girls, maybe even a bit of Steps, things like that. That's that's when I was a kid. That's when I was really kind of tuned into the pop chart and everything was wonderful. <laughs> so if I want to feel nostalgic, uh, then that is straight away what I go for. It's not something that I listen to daily, don't get me wrong. It's something that's maybe occasionally on in the car, but that's about it, really. Um, I listen to lots of different genres, but, you know, as you will probably, no doubt, be aware, my favourite kind of music is rock and metal, and that's uh, as general as you think. Any kind of subgenre of rock and metal, I usually like something within it. But there we go. My guilty pleasure, as I say, is late 90s and early 2000s pop. So that is it for another episode of the Music Survival Guide. If you enjoyed it, then please leave me a review wherever you listen to this podcast. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Please also share it with any friends and bandmates if you thought it was useful. I really appreciate all of you. So if you're interested, there's a community on Facebook called the Music Survival Guide Community. Hop over there for chats about music and band life with other musicians and industry people. And I will see you next time.